0: Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your co host of the Education Channel, Julie Callio. I'm excited today to talk to Betsy DeSalvo, lead editor of the volume Participatory Design for Learning Perspectives from Practice and Research. Betsy is an assistant professor in the School of Interactive Computing at Georgia Institute of Technology, where she leads the Culture and Technology Lab and is a leader in the field of participatory design research. Betsy DeSalvo, welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: Let's start with a bit about how you came to edit this book. What led you to the academic work that you do in general, and in particular, participatory design research?
1: Um, Yeah, well, I sort of fell into academic work. Um, I was living in Pittsburgh and uh, looking for work at the time, and this is around 2004. Um, I ended up taking a research scientist position at the University of Pittsburgh, Um, Center for Learning in Out-of-School Environments, and the reason why was because I had a background in marketing and project management, not because I had any academic experience at all. Um, And on the project that we were working on, it was a game for middle school girls to get them interested in science and technology. Um, We partnered actually with Carnegie Mellon School of Design faculty, um, including Kristen Hughes, and they were using participatory design and all sorts of different design methodologies, Um, so as I started doing research, um, at the university of Pittsburgh, I was using these design methodologies and frankly, I was so naive. I thought everybody in the world was, um, and it wasn't until I left and and decided that research was what I really wanted to do. And I went to Georgia tech to get my PhD. Um, I started my projects with all these design activities and participatory design with the, the, um, audiences I was working with and my, um, faculty advisor Amy Bruckman and other people were very confused as to why I was doing it. And I realized at that point, wow, this is something very different than what a lot of people are doing. Um, and I still, it it was very valuable and it really helped me tap into kind of motivations for learning that I felt um, through other methods I wasn't as easily, as easy for me to access. So the participatory design work really helped me better understand kind of the deeper motivations and values that students had.
0: And these students were mostly at the uh, collegiate level? Are, the, are they undergrad
1: or graduate students? No, I worked primarily with high school students at that time for my dissertation work. Right. And so almost all of my research is focused in K through 12. A little bit of it, it's at undergraduate level. Um, and I work a lot with out-of-school learning rather than in-school learning.
0: I have a little bit of that similar experience where I'm in an ed, an ed leadership program, but also talking a lot about participatory design and saying, hey, doesn't everybody do this? <laughs> All right. So to start us off for folks uh, who are listening, not familiar with the learning sciences or participatory design, could you give us your definition or description of how you think about these two fields?
1: That's an easy question. Uh, sarcastic. Um, Learning sciences is really an interdisciplinary field, and people are coming from so many different backgrounds that are working in learning sciences. Um, uh, I teach a lot of classes in learning sciences, and for us, all of those come out of the College of Computing. Um, One of the reasons why is because much of the learning sciences actually is built out of people who are looking at um, machine learning um, as a way to understand human learning and vice versa. So they found that many of the theorizing that they were doing around machine learning was actually applicable to how they could theorize about human learning. So, And then that moved into a lot of the work that's being done with um, cognitive tutors and other AI agents um, to help people learn. So there's a real strong tie between cognition and computer science, um, which is why our learning science program is out of our College of Computing. But there's also obviously a strong tie from education departments and a strong tie from um, psych departments, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and sociology and thinking more about the larger situated cultural issues around learning. Um, so it's all these disciplines coming together into one um, one field, really, while we each have kind of our specialization within that field. And so it gets a little confusing at times, but uh, I think that there's a lot of respect amongst those different fields. And the second half of this was really for me to think, talk to you about why participatory design is part of what I'm doing within that field. Um, So the one aspect of that field that I think has been Somewhat neglected or maybe taken for granted is the design aspect. The learning sciences work on theory, but they also work on practical applications and practice. Um, And that, of course, means that you're designing interventions for the classroom, for out of school experiences, for museum experiences, um, or just for new technology that you're designing. Yet, design as a part of a rigorous scholarship within the learning sciences has been a little neglected. Um, I think that's starting to change. Uh, There's been a few different kind of really motivating talks within the field to get people to think about design. Um, There's been a couple different books, I think, including ours, which really try and problematize design within the learning sciences. Um, But to me, it's a really good moment to focus on that and think, how is design as a practice something that we can think about rather than just making it assume that everybody knows what we're talking about when we're doing it. And I think, um, well, for the learning sciences, we often talk about design-based research. And because design is so prominent in the name of that, people think that it really is about design. But in reality, the design aspects of that has been kind of overlooked. Design is basically just considered iteration, right? That's design. You iterate on whatever it is that you're making. But we don't talk about all the other elements of what design means within design-based research. So I think when you look at participatory design, which has had a lot, has has a nice history in terms of scholarship, it's a great place to start in terms of really integrating the theory of design into the learning sciences. But I think there's other aspects of design that we could certainly benefit from.
0: That actually leads re- really nicely to my next question, um, which is specifically about that word participatory. Um, and and what is it to you that that, what is the connotation to you? Because I, for those who know the work of Henry Jenkins and others, I know you've written about the participatory cultures, it's used there, but that, that word carries a lot of weight.
1: Yeah. And it's, I think it's used a lot right now. Um. I look at kind of a Scandinavian tradition of how one thinks about participatory design. And in Scandinavia, participatory design really came about because of workers' unions who became involved with how the systems um, within the organizations that they were working were designed, right, so that they were more equitable and more democratic. Um, Participatory design is really about a, a... it's a practice, meaning it's not just something that you go out and do once within any research that you're doing. It's an ongoing practice within your research. Um, it's a set of methodologies, right, of actually engaging people with design to help you um, uh, kind of work on the research that you're doing. And then I think it's just a, uh, it's kind of a philosophy that you're saying that democratizing this research process, democratizing the kind of interventions we make, is an important part of what. Um, doing research is. Uh, So for me, participatory design is really, it's different than participatory culture, but I think there's overlaps. Um, When I think about participatory design, some people think of participatory design and co-design as the exact same things, where you basically go out and ask people to help you design something. But in reality, participatory design is a, it has some other criteria to it in my mind, which is that we're bringing all the stakeholders to the table. We're not just asking one set of users, right? How do we design this better? You're making sure that you get a variety and all of the voices heard, really, um, particularly voices that are often neglected. And the second thing is that people don't really know how to design. It's, it's giving respect to design as a practice. So participatory design is actually scaffolding that design experience for people. And it may be that they're actually um, doing activities, design type activities that have them thinking about their decision making process, but not necessarily like directly giving input onto how they decide to do some educational, you know, use an educational tool, right? Where we have them, first of all, think about and reflect upon decision making more generally, And then we might have them narrow down and narrow down until they have a a richer understanding of themselves, quite frankly, and the experiences around them. So they can start contributing to that design process in a better way. And in reality, they're the experts on what their lived experiences are in a way that we can never be as designers coming in from the outside. So it's not just about asking somebody how to design. It's actually about engaging in them in the whole process of design.
0: Nice. So I think that that actually, one of the um, tensions that seems to be running through the book is uh, design at, at the general or theoretical level versus design at the particulars of the case studies and Sort of that tension between the two. So maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, the chapter that you wrote with Kayla deports the participatory design for value-driven learning. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those case studies, the glitch game testers and the interactive Dia de Muertos puppets?
1: Yeah. Um, well, the glitch game testers was really my dissertation work and it was the first project that I did here at Georgia Tech and, um, and I immediately came in and started working with the kids on doing design activities just to understand more about what was motivating them for learning. Um, and the we did a lot of different activities over the course of like a year with kids that I was working with in an after-school environment, um, one of which was this idea about make an ad uh, to encourage your friends to stay in school, right? So we didn't want to ask them, how would you design something that would make you stay in school or how would you design something when it would engage you with learning more? Because they can't really answer that in that abstract way without more context. But we had them think about what would motivate your friends to stay in school and do their homework. Um, and in the book, we show the ad that they kind of came to consensus around, which was a dirty old basement with a game system set up. It was very depressing. And it said, If you don't want to live in your mom's basement, then do your homework. And it is a grim message, right? Um, We often try and motivate learning with, you know, you can be a superstar. You can go to the moon. You can get passionate about learning. But these kids from lower income neighborhoods were really focused on a way to get out of bad situations and using education as a little bit of a leg up on that. Um, And we realized how pragmatic they were. About education. So, that was one of the things that directed us towards being very pragmatic about what our sort of design was at the end. So, um, we wanted them to leverage their interest in games into an interest in computing. So, we did that in a very pragmatic way. We gave them entry level jobs in the game community. Um, They were doing real work for real game companies and getting paid an hourly wage. Um, and they were actually engaging in dialogue with software developers around bugs. Um, so they were doing the quality assurance work, which is really boring, terrible work. <laughs> it sounds glamorous, like they would totally lie to their friends that they were being played to pay video games because they were so good and it was so awesome. But in reality was they, it was it's really boring work. Um, you like are literally sometimes running your character and banging its head against the wall over and over and over again. Um, it's not just metaphorical, but, uh, yeah. And then taking the time to write up how a bug happens, right? So it ended up being this big piece in technical writing too. So describing all the steps you take to write a bug is actually, um, to, to describe how you found a bug in, in a piece of software is actually quite complicated. Um, sounds really easy, but we shorthand so much stuff that we don't realize we're shorthanding. So that was another piece that was great for them. Um, But at the end of the day, we would have had no idea about that kind of pragmatic piece to it if we hadn't done the participatory design side of it. We would have just been going off of their interest in video games, which was real, but it wasn't enough to probably sustain their involvement for two years in the project, which is what a lot of them ended up doing. Um, We had almost, we had, well, we had zero attrition over the course of the three years with 33 young men, right? And 60% of them went on to be, um, to go to school for computer science or information technology or digital media, something along those lines. So it was great. Yeah, it was great results. Um, but one of the challenges we found with that was spending all this time with this particular demographic, um, that had an interest in games, we were able to come up with an intervention that really spoke to them and their values, much deeper than just their interest in video games. Um, The challenge with that is that when you're doing stuff inside a classroom or even a lot of after-school activities, you have kids from all sorts of different backgrounds with very different value systems. Um, And so that's where our second project, which is the Day of the Dead um, interactive puppets came from. We were really working to find ways that we could create a framework that allowed them to bring their own cultural values into the project we were doing. And we've done a few different iterations of this, one on superheroes, um, one that was just around like issues in their community, and then the Day of the Dead is the project we've done the most frequently. So that project is based around this idea of meta-design, and this is where I think it kind of overlaps with some of Henry Jenkins' work with the participatory culture, um, Pelle, who is kind of the inspiration for a lot of our work with MetaDesign, talks about MetaDesign as a set of infrastructures that you design that allow people then to come in and redesign the experience for themselves. So it's designing for design, and in that way, it is participatory. And I think with Henry Jenkins talking about participatory culture, I mean, if we look at Wikipedia, it's a great example of meta design. People have come in and really structured meta- de- uh, uh, really designed Wikipedia to fit the needs of the participants in Wikipedia, right Not just the content but even all the rules about what's accepted to be posted in Wikipedia came out of the culture and the groups that are active there right um, so. In that way, we're trying to create that same sort of infrastructure in the classroom or in an after-school activity. Um, the Day of the Dead puppets offered us a chance to talk about something that was really culturally relevant to one group, which is um, uh, within the Mexican culture, you know, Day of the Dead is important celebration of the people who have died and, and celebrating their lives and kind of a ritual for recognizing death, Right. Um, But everybody's culture has a different way of reflecting and doing that. And within individual families, it's different. So we asked them to get inspiration from Day of the Dead and create an interactive puppet, but they would incorporate their own values, right? And the people in their lives or the characters, even from books or movies they've seen that really touched them when they died. Um, One of my favorite projects was actually a young woman who created a... um, she created kind of an interactive puppet that uh, expressed what happens when her uh, her phone dies. Um, <laughs> and, you know, she was being playful with it, but it was her connection to the world. And when she was at home, she had no other connection, right? So it's really important to her. Um, so that's what, I mean, we let people really take this in any direction they wanted, but we gave them this framework on how to build components to put into the device they eventually built, gave them... Um, components on exactly what technology they needed to learn. And then we also structured how to how to take those individual ideals and how to design them together within a classroom. Um, It gave us enough constraints so that we could actually teach it. Sometimes when you let students come in and do whatever project they want, it gets just too crazy, right? And you can't, um, as a teacher, you can't know all the content you need to help them. So it gave us as teachers enough structure to know the content we needed, but them enough freedom to bring their own value systems into it.
0: So I've been studying some um, personalized learning places where they're doing the interest-based learning and they they have these times, the passion projects or 20% time, where it is that sort of free-for-all, open it, open it up, pursue your interest. And I think there is that struggle on how you structure, what you called it designing for design, how you give them the infrastructure. And I think some teachers do it sort of intuitively, but it, to me, there seems to be a lack of formal processes to guide that. There are there are certainly the project-based learning environments that have their rubrics to do that. But um, I see that as being a place that there could be a lot of
1: crossover to um, directions and education. Um, and I certainly think that there's a lot of teachers who do this intuitively too. Um, and I think there's a lot of project-based learning um, opportunities that have, or, you know, interventions and things that have happened that have done this, but I don't know if it was intentional. It seems like a lot of times the project-based learning is based around what they think the kids are interested in. So let's do a project around hip hop music. And it may be that most of the kids are interested in hip-hop music, but I'm not sure if that interest is enough to, to sustain, like, an ongoing interest in that topic.
0: And so that's actually a nice um, segue, too, to one of my other questions for you was this value-driven learning versus that, in, or maybe versus isn't the right word, but an interest-driven learning. Um, because I think that that's a, that, again, is an important discussion, that a desire to bring interest in, um, and I think particularly from an from an equity lens, um, interest, there's a whole lot of, um, you know, valuing what kids are interested in. And like you said, the girl with her cell phone, where that would be sort of, well, that's not academic enough to bring in um, to the classroom. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you think about those two.
1: Yeah, I think that interest-driven learning is probably the most common of um, some of these uh motivational kind of constructs that we use within the classroom. And there's certainly other ones. I mean, there's culturally relevant or culturally responsive um, learning. There's um, just a lot of the project and, and problem-based learning is supposed to be about what the kids are involved in, what they're interested in. Um, What, and I wouldn't say that uh, connected learning is also another one that has a lot of similarities. I wouldn't say that we're actually disagreeing with any of these these different um, kind of constructs. I think what we're doing is saying that this lens of value uh, lets you see the problem in a different way. So rather than finding the thing that, you know, initiates a spark, we're talking about finding the thing that maintains um the students' involvement in that topic so that they see how it's relevant to their lives like going forward, right? So um, rather than talking to students about science issues, we'd rather talk to the students or about science content, we'd rather talk to the students about, you know, what are the issues in your environment that are important and how does science relate to those specific issues? Um, But they need to bring to us what those issues are. The challenge is when you talk to, you know, a 13-year-old, they don't actually understand what their values and interests are, right? So you have to do some of these participatory design type activities to help draw that out too, right? Um, So I I think that there's so many really open-ended learning environments where the kids just, you know, they make a lanyard because that's what they saw an example of, right? And so you got 50 lanyards, right? Because they can't really even conceptualize something that's more important to them. But if you gave them some tools to help conceptualize that, which is what we want to do, like what's important to you? What do you value? Not just like what do you think is going to look good on your T-shirt, right? Um, and, and so I wouldn't disagree with any of those approaches. I just think we're taking a slightly different lens on it. And, and, and honestly, we're really in the, in the process right now, me and my graduate student who are working on this, Caleb DeSports, to, um, to build this out, uh, into its own kind of theory, so I wouldn't say I have all the pieces in place today, but um, hopefully soon.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. Um, and I there was one note in the book about uh, towards the end about the a lot of um, the assumptions about trying to get these into schools that it has to happen in the way that schools are currently structured and. Um, How you bring these ideas, the spaces that you're able to do this sort of thing, um, as one of the constraints.
1: Yeah, and I think that really hits at the spirit of participatory design and as a workers' movement. Right, it's not saying that we're going to work within the the um, institution as it's now established. It's saying we're going to reimagine what the institution can be. Right. Um, It's harder to do with schools than it might be with just one factory. Right. <laughs> but uh, we can we can try. Yep.
0: <laughs> well, like I said, I, I you know in my research on personalized learning, I, I do see places trying to push at those at those boundaries. Um, so I want to turn a little bit uh, more formally to the book uh, because you have five sections that were set up: the introduction, and then participatory learning and design from diverse perspectives and contexts. You have case studies. Uh, emerging perspectives on participatory design and learning, and then concluding thoughts. And I was wondering when you were putting this together, were those sections that you had already conceived or did that sort of emerge as people wrote chapters or, or proposed chapters to write about?
1: I don't think that we had formally sat down and conceived them, but I'm certain that when we were doing this, Um, we really talked about, and this is with my, my co-editors and we were all super involved with it, Jason Yip and Elizabeth Bonsignore and Carl DeSalvo. Um, we knew that we wanted people that were from the participatory design side, particularly to help us think about, um, like those emerging movements in both participatory design and where it might overlap with learning, um. And we also knew that we were going to have case studies because there isn't a lot written or people thinking about this a whole lot previously. So we knew that some of what we could bring to the table were case studies. Um, The piece on diversity did kind of emerge in part from the case studies and people who were tapping into is that we recognize that the reason why people perhaps are turning to participatory design is because they're working with more diverse audiences, that they don't know or understand. And so they're needing to find tools that help them work with those audiences. And this is a natural fit for that, right? So in that sense, I guess we had, I think we had anticipated some of it and some of it we didn't, but we didn't formally say we're looking for things for these these particular sections. Yeah.
0: Um, and then the conversation chapters, I was intrigued because I've never seen that in a in a book or in an edited volume before. So these are chapters that put two or sometimes three uh, really leaders into conversation with each other. It sounds like some were from a conference, some might've been an online interview. Um, Can you tell me about how these came about and did they have the effect that you were hoping
1: for? Um, Those are some of my favorite parts of the book, quite honestly. And we didn't know it was gonna come out of them. Um, They were all interviews that we conducted over the phone. Um, And so they were really intentional about who the two people or three people were. Um, we were really looking for people who were coming from a more traditional learning science background and then people who are coming from a more traditional design background to have a conversation with each other. Um, and the reason why is because we knew some conflicts were going to emerge from those conversations about their ideals about what design was and what participatory design was. Um, and they did. I mean, and, but people were super respectful and lovely. Um, and I think that we, I think that people in those conversations, you can hear them sort of, recognizing new ideals themselves when you read the conversations, which is sort of fun. Um, but yeah, I think that, uh, certainly we saw, um, very few people in the chapters that we had and in the conversations that really have a background in both the design and the learning sciences. So it seems to be that they're kind of borrowing from each other and there aren't that many people that are sitting firmly in both camps. Uh, so that's what those conver- why those conversations were inspired, because we wanted to make sure there was dialogue between the two different types of chapters we were presenting um, so that people could start making those connections.
0: Yeah, I felt like just structurally, that was a really um, interesting way to do it. There was one place where John Colco says, I don't agree with some of what Allison just said. <laughs> and I think as a reader, you're like, oh, they don't all agree? And it gives you this sense of, oh, this – you know it almost like raises your level of um like being critic being a critical reader to say, "Oh, maybe some of the authors, even of the chapters, don't agree with each other." So I felt like the effect of that for me as a reader was really strong.
1: well, that's good. That's what we were hoping for so
0: yeah, um so one one piece actually, I think it was a little bit later, one of their conversations um they talked about, so this is Alison Druin and John Colco, that simple ideas pop out of a complex process. So in some ways, looking back at design, it can seem really obvious that this was the solution that you found, or this was the way to go about it. But yet, as the case studies talk about that, the design process is very complex. (laughs) Um, And I think, I was wondering for you as a researcher, how do you think about telling the narrative of the design process that communicates the complexity, the people, the situation uh, in a way that um, both gets into the complexities of the case study, but also, again, that sort of general level of the theory of design?
1: Um, This may be one of the reasons why I've really been drawn towards writing about design as an academic topic. Um, I've had, multiple times where I've done tons of research, formative research with different audiences to come up with designs. And when it's the right design, it feels like a really obvious answer, right? After the fact, you know, 2020 hindsight. Um, And I've multiple times had other academics say, oh, that was a good idea. What would you have done if it hadn't worked? And I'm like, it wasn't that I just came up with a good idea sitting in my basement. (laughs) I, uh, I did a lot of work and I was testing out my theories that I came up with from design. So, uh, I uh, I mean, I think that we need to start recognizing that the process of design is actually part of our research process too, and writing about it. And I'd like to see more people writing about it, not just from participatory design, but from other perspectives as well. Um, so I think it's a, it's a conflict. And I think that it's something that we can easily overcome, but it's going to take work and scholarship in that area.
0: Well, Betsy, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I was wondering if just in closing, you could tell us about what you're working on now and what directions you see for participatory design.
1: Sure. Um, So one of the things that we're working on right now is really uh, expanding this idea of value-driven learning and trying to theorize that out and draw a number of examples in that will help us explore that more, both from our own work and from other people's work. Um, so hopefully some, of, some things around that will come out within the next year. Um, the other piece that I'm working on that's more tied to participatory design is thinking about how the learning sciences can actually contribute to participatory design. So um, one of the tenets for a lot of the participatory designers is that people participating will learn from the process. And I think they most certainly do. Um, They learn about design and they do a lot of self-reflection and there's a lot of metacognition going on, but there's very little learning theory or very little um, understanding of how you evaluate that learning um, or really attention paid to it. So as much as I think the learning sciences needs to gain from the field of design, I definitely see participatory designers can gain a lot from working with learning scientists and their theories. So I'm doing some work in that arena, too.
0: Yeah, very exciting. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, And thanks for all of you listening today. And I hope you enjoyed this interview with Betsy DeSalvo. Please check out the other great interviews on the New Books Network and tune in again.